Hello and welcome to the HSS podcast. My name is Paul Verhagen, Associate Data Analyst here at the Hague Center for Strategic Studies and the host for this podcast. Today we will be talking to Chris Painter, who is a Commissioner at the Global Commission on the Stability of Cyberspace. Besides his current role in the GCSC, Chris has been at the forefront of cyber diplomacy and cyber policy for decades. Starting his career as a prosecutor on some of the first cybercrime cases ever, he later moved through various government institutions, such as the Department of Justice, the FBI, the National Security Council, and finally, the Department of State. Welcome, Chris. I'm glad you're here today to share some of your insights. Thank you. Happy to be here. Happy to be in the Netherlands at uh, uh, the Hague Center for Strategic Studies. Very happy to have you. First of all, today's discussion is going to be a bit about what is cyber stability and why should we care about it? So, I mean, cyber stability, you look at all the threats we see in cyberspace, and there are a range of, an ever-growing range of both technical threats and policy threats. And, and some of those threats we combat in the short term. Some of them, we have to have better law enforcement coordination or better technical coordination, uh, or just hardening our targets better, doing better cybersecurity. But when you're thinking of especially nation-state threats, which we've also seen a real increase over the last few years of, uh, that undermine or threaten to undermine the entire platform, how can we create an environment of, of stability that would act in such a way that there would be a disincentive for disruptive actions and there would be incentives for cooperative actions? So states really don't have an incentive to undermine these networks that give us such great economic and social growth, and they have incentives to cooperate. That's a long-term game. That's something that doesn't happen overnight. That's a long-term diplomatic issue. That's a long-term negotiating issue. It's a state. It's an equilibrium we're trying to reach. And the reason we care about that, and I think this has become more apparent as we've gone on, as we become so much more dependent on all these technologies, and we clearly are today, and it's only getting more dependent as we go forward, uh, if that technology, if those networks are undermined, and if they're made really unstable, uh, and we have uncertainty of whether or not what actions are proper in cyberspace and what consequences there are if someone violates those actions, that leads to a very unfortunate world for us, uh, and it really undermines much of the economic and social success we're trying to achieve. So the point is to set some basic rules of the road so everyone plays by roughly the same types of response within the system. A lot of misunderstanding in cyberspace. There's not real clear understanding of what escalation means in cyberspace. There's not real clear understanding of what is proper to do or not do in cyberspace and what any actor, not just states, but other actors should do. Yes, we have good criminal laws. We understand what cybercrime is. But when you get beyond that, there's a lot of misunderstanding, a lot of you know, just failure to agree on things. And so that creates a lot of instability in the environment more generally. And so it's really working toward that greater understanding in a framework that will get us there. Right. So the GCSC is an organization that tries to uh, promote this idea of stability yeah. in cyberspace and tries to set these norms. So how do you go about doing this? What sort of mechanisms, what sort of stakeholders do you need to bring around the table? So when I was at the State Department, I was our first cyber diplomat. I was, I think, the first cyber diplomat in the world at the time, and now there are about 30 of them, which is great, since it makes it more of a policy issue and not just a technical issue. We started many years ago within the context of the UN promoting this idea of a stability framework, that you uh, international law applies in cyberspace, just like it does in the physical world, that there should be, because international law doesn't cover everything, existing international law, we should think about what are, what are the kinds of rules of the road, what are the norms in cyberspace, expectations of behavior, either ways that states constrain themselves from taking action or agree to cooperate. And then finally, uh, confidence building measures, confidence and stability measures, the only real analog, I think, to the nuclear world, where 
you want to build better understanding so you can prevent inadvertent escalation. Things like exchanging uh, doctrine or having hotlines. So we started that effort and we really were promoting this what we call stability framework around the world. And that was largely the province of states talking about this. But there was a recognition that states are not the only ones who, who are actors in cyberspace and who this applies to. The private sector owns a lot of the cyber, our cyberspace, civil society participates in the way it's governed. We all have a stake in this. The Global Commission was set up to bring many of these stakeholders together, former government folks to be sure, but also academics, civil society, the private sector, uh, some of the internet wise guys as I call them, the people who actually helped found the internet, uh, like Vint Cerf who was part of this, uh, and, and look at this issue and say, how can we add to this? How can we promote stability? Are there things we can suggest, measures we can suggest, principles, frameworks we can suggest that allows the entire community to make cyberspace more stable in the long run? Okay, so the, the GCSE is clearly a sort of a, a big tent kind of approach. You need a lot of different people. There's a lot of different moving parts. Uh, people have different interests. So it's built on this idea of consensus as well, that everyone agrees on these basic principles, but there's no real hard rules within cyberspace as of yet. Yeah. So what happens when you when you have a bunch of actors, not naming any, but that don't play by the rules? What happens if you get antagonistic actors within? Well, I mean, this is not different from the physical world. I mean, people try to often think of cyberspace as an entirely different thing, where the rules and the things that we've done in the physical world don't apply. That's dangerous in itself. It has to be grounded in what we do in the physical world. When we talk about international law, things like distinction, proportionality, things like that, that have brought us safely into the 20th, 21st century, those still things also apply in cyberspace. The problem is there's not great understanding. Even as we promote these new rules of the road, these new understandings, voluntary though they are, um, and what that might mean, things like don't attack the critical infrastructure of another state that came out of the UN, or one that came out of the commission, don't attack the public core of the internet in such a way that you disable it or take it down. We need to get wider understanding among countries and embracing those concepts. So it's great that we say it, but we need much more embracing of that so it becomes more universal. So that's part one. But then you raise a really good question. What happens if there are disruptors? You can have all the rules on the road, but they end up just being pieces of paper if there is no enforcement mechanism, if there's no way to make sure there's some compliance. And unfortunately, we've seen, particularly over the past year, a lot of state activity, which has been violation both in the physical world and the, and the cyber world, and there's not enough consequences to really keep that from happening. So part of the larger stability issue is not just coming up with these great rules, <laughs> but actually having a way to enforce them. And I think we're better if we do that collectively and not singly, if we can. Right. So one of the events that happened last year that you're probably referring to is this, this OPCW hack that happened uh, here in the Netherlands. Yeah. Um, some have talked about this as being a watershed moment in cyber deterrence as well as cyber attribution. Now, do you agree with that assessment or is it somewhat more complicated? So I think it's a continuation, on attribution, I think absolutely it is. I think it's a continuation of what we've seen and a very good trend. Uh, years ago, the first public attribution by a head of state uh, against another nation state actor in cyberspace really was President Obama when he called out North Korea for attacking Sony Pictures over that not very good movie that came yeah. out. Uh, that was a big moment, and, and a lot of people questioned that attribution and said, well, how do you really know? And of course, no state is going to release all the evidence they have. That's never going to be true. Uh, but that was an interesting moment then. And then recently, we've had a string of these. And the strings have been interesting because when we did the North Korea attribution back then, 
I was at the State Department, I called many of my colleagues and said, can you support us? Many did, but also they wanted to get more of the evidence and understand how this worked. Since then, we've had uh, a number of countries come together collectively, which I think is very important, and publicly, which is also important, to attribute the WannaCry worm mm -hmm. uh, to North Korea, to attribute the big Notpedia worm caused damage to Maersk and a lot of other entities around the world to Russia. And now, with this OPCW one, not only was a number of states, uh, US, UK, uh, the Netherlands, uh, Australia, Australia involved, yeah. uh, I think it ended up being, um, I think uh, Germany has joined and France has joined. This is a, a huge number of countries who come out. Uh, partly, I think, uh, because of the just brazen nature of this. Partly because the evidence was so good <laughs> and so clear. But that really, I think, helped advance this idea of attribution. And people inside often think, well, attribution in cyberspace, you know, it's hard, can't really do it. I think we proved we can do it. Attribution is harder in cyberspace because of anonymity, because people can use proxies and do other things, but it's not impossible and you can do it and it's important to do it. So I think it's a watershed moment from that. Uh, the question now is, calling them out is one thing, uh, but you're not gonna really name and shame Russia, just like you're not gonna name and shame North Korea. Countries like China might be different because they care about soft power, Russia's been so disruptive in both the physical and non-physical world that it's hard to say that's going to really change your behavior. So we have to do more. And so even though that was really good, we now have to follow that up with further action, taking some further action to make sure that they understand this is unacceptable and they don't do it in the future. You spoke a little bit about why the OPCW hack is and is not a watershed and why Russia in particular might be immune to this sort of strategy of naming and shaming. What sort of different actors are there within the broader cyber world and, and how do they respond differently to different types of tools that you might pull out of your toolkit? So uh, when you talk about deterrence, this is really what I'm, I'm, I'm saying we need to do with respect to Russia, with respect to all these bad state actors in cyberspace. We need to do a better job of deterring their conduct, which means we need to do two things that are core to deterrence. I mean, there's various kinds of deterrence. There's deterrence by denial. There's deterrence by entanglement, you know, that you're so entangled with each other that uh, you don't want to take actions that would be disruptive. Uh, I'd say with Russia right now, <laughs> uh, neither of those things is really working. So then the other kind of deterrence is imposing costs for activity uh, that are timely and effective. And I, I submit we haven't done either of those very well. But when you do that, you have to tailor them to the various actors you're talking about. A different thing is going to deter Russia than it's going to deter China or North Korea or Iran were the four major state actors that have been identified by our director of national intelligence as major state threats. So to give you an example, back a few years ago, we were, and we are again, unfortunately, uh, we were suffering and complaining about uh, widespread theft of intellectual property and trade secrets using cyber means uh, by China. And it was a major issue, not just for us, but for other countries around the world. Now, I think China cares more about their soft power. I think they care how they're perceived in the world. And I think because of that, in part, and also the threat of economic sanctions and the fact that President Xi was going to come and have a summit in Washington and they wanted things to go smoothly, we were able to reach an agreement which took about two years to get to, where they agreed that there was a difference between normal intelligence gathering, which every country does, and the kind of intellectual property theft and benefiting your commercial sector, which neither we do, you know, the Dutch don't do, uh, others don't do, but they were doing. And they agreed that there was a difference and no country should do that latter kind of commercial theft. Uh, that led to a diminution agreement and then a diminution of that activity. 
uh, for a long time. I wasn't born yesterday. I didn't expect it to disappear. Uh-huh. Uh, there is some evidence that's now coming back up. But partly, that was conditioned by consistent high-level messaging from President Obama. Every time he saw she, he would raise it. Every time Susan Rice saw her counterpart, they'd raise it. Every a cabinet minister would raise it. Other countries would raise it. You know, Cameron in the UK would raise it. Merkel would raise it. And that really made a difference, that consistent messaging. And the messaging this just wasn't a cyber issue. This was an overall issue for the overall relationship. Now, you contrast that with Russia. You know, if you're trying to deter Russia, you look at our various tools in our toolkit. They're not that many. They're diplomatic, which we use with respect to China. They're economic, like sanctions, which again, that with the threat of that, I think, helped in China. There are law enforcement. You can indict people. We did with OPCW, did in China too. But that's not likely to deter a state actor because you know the people might not ever travel from that country. It might have some effect, but it's not likely to deter them. Then you have cyber options, as they call them. And people have this dreamy idea of these cyber options. There's a big red button, you push them, and suddenly everything goes away. And that's, that's so far from the truth, it's really hard to describe. <laughs> these are options we need to have in our toolkit, but uh, you know, they're not the silver bullet that people think they are. And then finally, you have kinetic options, and you're not going to use that unless you're really in a war. So you have a limited tool set, but one thing that's consistent that you need is whatever tools you use, and however you tailor them to that country, a potential adversary or a frenemy, depending on who they are, you also want to have this consistent messaging. With Russian interference in our election, we took some actions at the end of the Obama administration. I would submit that they were, uh, we should have done those sooner and probably more powerfully. But even the actions taken in this administration were, I think, substantially undercut when President Trump constantly cast doubt on whether the Russians were even responsible. So that that can undermine all the deterrent message you have. So we, we just need to do better. We, we don't do a good job deterring this activity. We don't do a good job of messaging. We don't do a good job of employing these tools. I think we're more effective if we do this collectively than alone. If we can get countries just like we've done with a joint attribution, that's great. Recently in the EU, they've talked about sanctions package for cyber. That's great too. But we need to actually employ these tools. We can't be afraid to do it. Cyberspace is not so different than the physical world that we shouldn't be doing this. Right. So over your pretty long career, you've worked for a number of different institutions and for a number of different administrations as well, from the Department of Justice to the FBI to the National Security Council and then the State Department at some point. Um, and cyber as a phenomenon has become both sort of a domain that people need to make decisions about as well as an instrument of power itself. With that, I'm referring to the left of launch approach and the Obama administration. Obviously, Russia has been using it very proactively to try and meddle in the U.S. elections, which is confirmed by any number of sources. So if you had to take sort of the long duration picture of how cyber has evolved over these administrations, what has changed over the years? Are there different actors coming in? Are different formulations coming in? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I think the conversation has matured a great deal. Uh, when I first started doing this many years ago, this was seen as a boutique issue, as kind of a bright, shiny object, as a technical issue. If you went and talked to ministers in, our, in your system and cabinet secretaries in ours, literally their eyes would like roll back in the back of their heads and this just wasn't something they understood and they said well the technical people can deal with this and it's not a technical issue not just like nuclear policy is of course everything is grounded in the technical issues but it's not you don't need to be a technician you don't need to be a, a programmer to understand the core foreign policy issues national security issues economic security human rights issues that are part of this 
So that's beginning to change, that I've seen in governments a better recognition that those are real core issues. Certainly election interference and some of the big attacks have helped drive that and our dependence on these technologies. That's a good thing. We're not there yet. There's still this divide where people still are a little bit scared of cyber. When I talked about deterrence before, I think that one of the things I've seen is that you, know, you had like the Salisbury poisoning where people get that instantly and they were able to rally around very quickly and take action. Cyber is not that way yet. We, have, we haven't been able to actually make that conversation happen real quickly yet. We need to do that. We need to mainstream this much more. So that's been one aspect. The other aspect is you know, and actually a, a tremendous amount of continuity, which I think is good. I have always been very happy that cyber generally has been a nonpartisan or a bipartisan issue. Uh, no matter where you are in the political spectrum, this is an important issue and it's a security issue. That's changed somewhat after the election interference because the whole issue of Russia and Russian responsibility and how that affected the election has become politicized. And maybe I'm naive, maybe you know, the more important this becomes, it has to become political because <laughs> the way the world works. But I think it's unfortunate because we really all have an interest in doing this. But the continuity is important. The Trump administration just issued its new uh, cybersecurity strategy to a lot of fanfare. But if you look at it closely, it's very, very similar to the Obama administration strategy. And the Obama strategy built on some of the activity at the end of the Bush administration. Bush had the Comprehensive National Cyber Initiative. I was involved with that. Uh, the strategy that came out of the beginning of the Obama administration built on that, added other dimensions like the international dimension and some of the other dimensions to that. And the Trump administration strategy is consistent, and that's a good thing. That's not a bad thing. That Even though if it doesn't break major new ground, it's not a bad thing. Now, it focuses a little more on imposing costs and having deterrence. Again, I don't think that's a bad thing. But you have to be careful there, too. One of the things I found most interesting is the national strategy came out, and there's a provision, a section on international aspects. And it has this phrase in it that says, we're better acting together than we are alone. Doesn't sound very America first-ish, does it? <laughs> Not very Trump. -y, <laughs> it actually no. sounds uh, pretty rational. It sounds like something you'd want to do. And indeed, that's why I think the U.S. is trying to do, is to work on deterrence with other countries, and that's great. Now, on the other hand, when the strategy was rolled out, John Bolton was very hawkish and talked about using cyber weapons and really flexing our muscles. Again, I think cyber tools are one of the tools in our toolkit, and we should use them as appropriate, but they're often not going to be the most effective tool. In fact, I'd say you seldom are going to go and use cyber in response to a cyber attack. Even Rob Joyce said that just yesterday, uh, who was a former cyber coordinator. But but he was he was what I was doing, what I like to call cyber rattling. It's like saber rattling with cyber. You know, we're going to do, be really <laughs> aggressive. And you can see that that's sort of intention with the strategy, that if you're going to work with other like-minded countries to build this closer alliance to go after these shared threats, and at the same time do things unilaterally that might affect their own territories, that's not a consistent strategy. So we'll see how that plays out. And of course, strategies, just like norms, are words on paper, unless you actually implement them, unless you resource them, we'll see how that goes. I, I worry, as I said before, that this may not be a personal priority of this president. There's lots of good people, though, that I think are trying to carry this forward. Right. Um, and so circling back a little bit on your, your brilliant term of cyber rattling, there is an increased interest from military and kinetic applications of cyber. So uh, two questions, essentially. One, is it necessary for, for cyber attacks to have a kinetic impact for people to take it seriously? And two, what is the role of the military more broadly, also looking forward in terms of the evolution of cyber policymaking? 
So I, I hope, the, the answer to your first part of your question is I hope not. I mean, people for years have talked about a cyber 9-11 or a cyber, you know, a cyber Pearl Harbor, all these, these terms. And, you know, if that's what we need to actually wake up and to change our policy, God help us. You know, that, would, that would be terrible. Maybe it is. I hope that's not true. I do think we've shown progress in, in thinking about these things. I do think some of the events that have happened have driven that. I will tell you as a cyber person, I mean, I'm not a cyber person, but I'm a person who does cyber, uh -huh. um, that when the Russian interference happened and, and I was at the State Department, that's not a threat we were focused on. We were focused on potential attacks against infrastructure that would take down the power grid or the uh, financial system. We haven't seen that yet. We've seen tests of that, like in Ukraine, for instance, uh, taking down the power grid, for instance. I was focused on theft issues, but this hybrid threat was a new one. So we all have to think about what all these new threats are going to be. I think as we see these things unfold, people are beginning to get it and say why this is important. So hopefully we don't need to think about it. As far as how this fits into the, what, the, what the military's role is, yes, the military absolutely has a role in two ways. One, they themselves are far more dependent on these technologies, so they've got to protect their own systems. I mean, this, is the, uh, this will be one vector that in any kind of shooting war in the future, just like jamming radio signals was, there will be something that will happen. And when you have uh, weapon systems and others that are dependent on this, absolutely, that's going to be an issue. But the second is that, uh, you know, over, I'd say every country that has the possibility of developing offensive cyber capabilities, that's to be expected. It's true with any new technology. It's, it's kind of uh, uh, naive to think that they wouldn't. But we need to make sure we have doctrines and rules around that so there's some understanding of how those are used. And there has to be some understanding of how effective those are. So I mentioned before that a cyber tool might not be the best tool to use, that it could cause other kinds of damages that you didn't, you know, you didn't anticipate, that it might not actually have the effect that you want it to have, or the effect might just be short-term, which is not what you need for deterrence. You really need to look at all these different issues as you go forward, uh, and that there's potentially escalation and other effects, and it might be at odds with some of the other things you're trying to do. But it needs to be a tool that we're, we're looking at. But the idea of having doctrines and understandings of how these tools are used goes way, right back to what we said in the beginning of the interview. Why do we care about stability in cyberspace? Why, why is that a big deal? Well, these rules of the road actually help that. People have talked about doing a cyber weapons treaty. You can't do a cyber weapons treaty. I don't know what a cyber weapon is. I don't know, you know, you have dual use technologies that could be used for testing and other purposes. And the technology changes constantly, so how do you do that? But if you look at the end results, like saying, let's not attack the infrastructure of another country. You look what the result is. You don't want that result. And say that's off limits. Or don't attack the computer emergency response teams. It's like the ambulances. Or don't go after the election interference, one of the ones from the commission. Those are practical suggestions. And saying, don't do this because it will be destabilizing if you do it. That, I think, is a good way forward. Uh, and, and that's exactly what we're trying to pursue. So we've talked at length about Russia, which is probably one of the most prolific cyber bad actors within the, the regime as a, as a whole. Uh, Russia tends to be particularly difficult with attribution. And is there anything you would like to yeah, say? Yeah, I mean, that? this is, in some ways, is another parallel between the physical and the, and the, the cyber world. Russia uh, has said that they want uh, essentially 100% attribution, and they want it backed up by fully disclosed evidence. There are a couple problems with that. First of all, you don't have 100% attribution in anything we ever do in the world, whether it's physical or in cyber. I was a prosecutor for a number of years. There, the standard was beyond a reasonable doubt. That's not 100%. Uh, so you don't have 100%. It's a, it's a way to hide behind attribution. And we saw this in the physical world with the invasion of the Ukraine, with the little green men, for instance. 
And you see it in the cyber world that even after the OPCW hack, Russia said, oh, they were there to do like technical testing. <laughs> so so it, it's, it's, uh, it's in part a game. But, but ultimately, you know, attribution when states make it uh, is a political act. They've decided that they have enough evidence and the evidence is not just following the digital footprints, but looking at other intelligence, looking at money flows, looking at motive, that they feel confident they can make this claim. And states don't want to be wrong because if they're wrong, it undercuts their credibility in the future. Uh, so I don't think we can, we can insist on a certain level or of attribution you want. I think it's always going to be political. I think it's always going to be based on a variety of kind of evidence. But states also have to use that responsibly, and I think so far they have. I think that's a really good point to round off the interview. I only have one last question for you, which is that I know you're quite a fan of dystopian or utopian movies that involve cyber. So if you would have to name one thing that makes you pessimistic and one thing that makes you optimistic about the future of the GCSC and cyber writ large, well, what would you say? In movie terms, is that? <laughs> Even as a former prosecutor, I was a prosecutor for many years doing some of the early cyber crime cases like Kevin Mitnick and others back in the day. I'm basically optimistic. I basically, even when I see all the problems that we have and all the threats that I see and, and maybe the stalled progress sometimes in addressing them, I'm still optimistic we can come together and address these. So, so that's good. And so in that sense, it's not a, it's not a cyber movie, but uh, the Frank Capra movie, It's a Wonderful Life. But <laughs> now on the pessimistic side, um, look, we are faced with greater threats every day. And, and a lot of the activities we've seen this past year are clearly a problem. I think it's going to be a continuing problem. We've also seen pre-positioning of malware on some of our electrical power grid systems. That itself is, is scary. So, and one of the things I worry about that we really haven't even discussed is the integrity of information. So, you know, if someone hacks into my, uh, my health records and changes my blood type and I get a transfusion and I die, that's bad. If someone gets into the trading floor of an exchange so you can't settle trades, that could be catastrophic. And we haven't seen any deaths really result from cyber either. So, so we've been lucky so far. But all of that means that if we don't really get a handle on this, I'm worried about the future. And so in that sense, the movie analog for that would be uh, one of my favorite movies, a movie called Colossus, The Forward Project, the first movie where computers took over the world. So 1970, US builds Colossus to control its nuclear arsenal, take the nab, and then it'll have perfect deterrence. Soviets steal the information, so early uh, cyber theft. Uh, build their own version of the URLs called Guardian. The two computers talk to each other and to protect humankind from themselves, they take away all civil liberties and take over the world. So that's a dystopian future. I don't want that dystopian future. I want the much more positive future. And the only way we're gonna get there is really work on things like stability, on norms, and, and really better engagement between like-minded and even non-like-minded countries. I think that's an excellent note to end the interview on. I want to thank you for sharing your insights and your experience. Uh, you can follow Chris Painter on Twitter at C underscore Painter. <laughs> and you can follow myself at, at PJ Verhagen. Uh, please make sure to subscribe to our channels on iTunes and SoundCloud. And we look forward to hearing your next interview. Thanks.